your Bibles, you can open them to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, this is where we are. As we began two weeks ago, a very brief series, just three sermons during this opening month of the new year. Something we've done in the past, taking advantage of a time where people are engaged in a new year, thinking about what that new year will hold, making goals, setting plans, and all of the things that typically happen in the beginning of the year. I think for Christians, it's really important for us to do that. I don't mean setting necessarily uh, resolutions. What I mean really is considering God's goodness in the year past and looking forward to what he will do in the year to come and how we might more humbly and more faithfully serve him by his grace. The focus of this series that I trust you'll remember is the idea of being sober-minded. Sober-mindedness is what we're talking about. It's a very common exhortation in the New Testament that we be as Christians sober-minded. There seems to be about the world in which we live something that would call us more and more in our day to sober-mindedness. The challenges we're facing as a nation culturally and in the world, I suppose this sober-mindedness is something that every age has called its followers to, its believers to. Uh, nothing new under the sun, but there seems to me in our day an especial uh, importance in calling us to sober-mindedness. Uh, what is it? We talked last week that it's not a lack of ability to have fun, to laugh. It's not an absence of a sense of humor. It's not taking ourselves too seriously. Rather, Though it came through the idea of being sober with respect to alcohol, it came to mean something more than just uh, sober in that sense. It came to me a clear-headedness, self-controlled, temperate, a watchfulness over one's life, and a clarity of mind for service to God. It means living this life that God has given to us with a view to eternity, with a knowledge that this world is not all that there is, and to see all of life with reference to God and the judgment to come. That's very important for us to understand. And we saw last time that the Greek word used here by Peter in this passage tonight, as well as in the one we studied before and the one next week in chapter 5, is only found seven times in the New Testament. Now, there are other words in the Greek that can be and have been translated as sober. But this word occurs only seven times in the New Testament and three times in Peter, and each time he uses it, he does so in relation to something that is very, very significant. And so I thought this would be a good place to sort of plant ourselves and to study in these three weeks. The Apostle Peter, of course, as we noted, writes his two letters with a sense of urgency. Uh, he is, uh, as you read through it, he is writing to believers who are scattered among Asia Minor. They are suffering for the cause of Christ. The reality of that suffering of the Christian life, of their faith in Jesus, is a real thing for these saints. And so Peter speaks a great deal about eternal things, about the judgment to come, and about the hope that belongs to those who look for the coming of Christ in glory. And so we're not surprised that he talks then about sober-mindedness, about thinking clearly about the world in which we live and what God has called us to do in it. And so it's not surprising as well that we find these three distinct places in his first letter where he speaks about this idea of sober-mindedness. 
In chapter 1, verse 13, as we saw last time, he spoke with reference to the pursuit of holiness and how sober-mindedness, thinking rightly about God, about ourselves, about the world, is really very significant and important in the pursuit of holiness. Tonight, we'll look at sober-mindedness with reference to our prayers. And then in chapter 5, next week, Lord willing, verse 8, he speaks of sober-mindedness in respect to our being watchful of our enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. Tonight again on page 1205 in your pew Bible, you'll find 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll ask that you stand as we read the first 11 verses for context. Our focus will really be only on verse 7, but we need to see the whole of the context here as much as we can in this reading. So listen as I read This is God's word. May God bless it to our hearing. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each other has received a gift to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower it fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we pray that even now you would bless us by your spirit, that we might have sober minds as we consider this your word, that you would strengthen us unto every good work for your glory and honor, that you would give us ears to hear and in hearing to rejoice in your word and to receive it with joy, we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Very quickly in chapter 1, verse 13, the last time we were together, Peter was admonishing his readers to live holy lives because, as Leviticus tells us, as God is holy, so we are called to be holy as well. And we learn three, I think, important things with respect to that pursuit of holiness and its relationship to sober-mindedness. The first thing we saw is that sober-mindedness really is at the foundation of the pursuit of holiness. 
What I mean by that is when God regenerates a man or a woman, the first thing that happens with our minds is that we are given new ways, a new mind to think. We think differently now as Christians. That is the gift of sober-mindedness. That is looking at the world, at God, ourselves, and everything that we see from the perspective of the eternal, from the perspective of God. And so the pursuit of holiness at the very beginning of it is this idea of sober-mindedness. The second thing we learned is that sober-mindedness also encourages us in that pursuit of holiness, is as we are given ourselves to being sober and looking at this world with a clear-headed view from God's perspective that we then pursue holiness more and more. It's really only the sober-minded who see life as it is, who pursues holiness of life. And so sober-mindedness encourages us in that pursuit of holiness. And then thirdly, we saw that sober-mindedness actually sustains the pursuit of holiness, is as we remain sober-minded that we are sustained in that pursuit over and over again, each and every day, and each and every moment of every day, as we remember who we are, whose we are, who God is, what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, and that he has appointed a day of judgment committed to his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that is sober-mindedness. That's biblical thinking. That's the way we see the world. And that way of thinking, that way of living, actually sustains us in the pursuit of holiness. This evening, we come to the second use of the word. It's the same word throughout that Peter uses now in chapter 4, verse 7. And I think the overall context of these verses, we've read a portion of it, reminds believers ultimately about their union with Jesus Christ and his suffering. Remember, these believers are suffering. They've been scattered throughout Asia Minor for the cause of Christ. They are physically, literally suffering for the sake of Christ. And in this chapter in particular, in this context, in verses 1 through 6, Peter tells us that as Christ suffered in the flesh, which he did, he denied sin and lived to do the will of God, that we also are to live in that same way since we too, being united to Christ, have died to sin as well and are truly free as slaves of Christ, theme this morning. But now through his power in us, we can resist sin and live holy lives. And then in verses 12 through 19, this sort of second part that is on each side of our verses, Peter reminds his readers and us that we ought not to be surprised when we suffer for righteousness' sake. We who suffer for righteousness' sake, he tells us, share in the sufferings of Jesus, as well as his glory to be revealed in us. And in that suffering, he says, we can entrust ourselves to God, who is faithful. Now, in the middle of those two sort of ideas on both sides related to suffering, Peter here tells all his readers these, reality, these, these realities of suffering mark the end of the age, that as believers are called to suffer for the sake of Christ, as Christ suffered, that's a mark that the end of the age has come. We are living in the last days. The end of all things, he says, is at hand. There are certain marks then, he says, that ought to characterize our lives as we wait for the Lord's return. 
And this is a great list. These verses, 7 through 11, is a wonderful list to meditate on, think upon, and perhaps consider memorizing as you think about the life that God has called us to live. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded because the end of the age is at hand, the end of all things. Secondly, keep loving one another earnestly, he says. And then thirdly, show hospitality, but do it graciously. Fourth, use gifts that God has given to serve one another and to build one another up. And then five, in all things, seek the glory of God. That's a great list. It's worth remembering and living out in your life as you enter this new year. It's really only the first one we're looking at tonight because it's the place where we see the word that Peter uses. And so as we look at this, three things briefly to point out as we look at this particular verse, verse 7. Let me read it again. The end of all things, the last days, is now at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The first thing I want to look at is the relationship between sober-mindedness and the end of all things. While there may be some differences among commentators as they view this phrase, the end of all things, there does seem to be a general consensus that what is in view is what the Bible refers to as the last days, the time between Christ's ascension into heaven and his coming again into glory. It means the end of the world order as we know it. It means the final establishment of his kingdom on earth when he comes again in judgment. That is what the end of all things refers to. That reality that we are living now in the last days in 2024, as much as those believers were living in when Peter wrote to them in the first century, is why Peter says we are called to be sober-minded. It is the knowledge that Christ may return at any moment. Even now, the very second as I speak, what kind of mind in view of that ought the Christian to have? Peter says we ought to have sober minds. Jesus made this point with his disciples many times in the Gospels, in his teaching. It's amazing as you read through his teaching how many times he talks about this idea of the end of the age and the need for his followers to be sober-minded. One such place, of course, takes in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, where Jesus says this to his disciples, but concerning that day and that hour, that is of his coming, the end of the age, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, he says... Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, 
for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You can summarize the people who lived in the day of Noah as not being sober-minded. And you can summarize the call of Jesus when he uses phrases like, stay awake, pay attention, as a call to sober-mindedness in this present age. Sober-mindedness is the only way to live when we are living at the end of all things, to be awake, to be aware, to be ready. That's why I think it's the first in Peter's list here, the first that he mentions in verses 7 through 11 of the five that we reviewed. We have to be alert and ready, even as we are called to suffer. This is the key characteristic of a people who know that they are living in the last days. We often quote this passage from Hebrews 10, verse 25, as we remind one another of what it is that we're called to do, especially as we gather for worship. Let us hold fast, the writer of Hebrews says, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, the day, the end of all things drawing near. We can also look at those who have the habit of not meeting for worship as a people who were not living in a sober-minded way in the times in which we are living. And so we see the relationship here in Peter's mind between sober-mindedness and the end of all things. Secondly, please note with me the relationship between sober-mindedness and self-control. Peter puts these ideas side by side and together in our text. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. The idea of being self-controlled is the idea of guarding and controlling our passions. The passions of our flesh is particularly what is in view. Lack of self-control leads to ineffectiveness and a lack of fruitfulness. Even worse, it may lead to utter destruction. As we think of the Old Testament and many examples we find there, you think of Achan in the book of uh, Exodus, Achan's cra or J Joshua, Achan's craving for the devoted things in Joshua 7. In stark disobedience to the Lord's commands, he coveted the beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar of 50 shekels, and he seized them against the Lord's clear command. His lack of self-control proved devastating, not only to himself, but also to his family. One writer in writing about this idea of self-control says this, the virtue of self-control does not win popularity contests today. In a 2012 University of Pennsylvania study, respondents ranked their own 24 personal skills from top to bottom and assessed self-control as dead last. We should not be surprised. Not fighting back against personal anarchy is not an option for the believer in Christ. We must be vigilant against the unruly desires triggered by the enchantments of the world. We should strive to put to death our flesh's demand for instant gratification. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. To be enslaved to our desires does not befit one who is called to be holy as the Lord is holy. It does not connect to this idea of sober-mindedness, that is a lack of self-control, which is that new way of thinking and looking at the world and all things that God works in us at our conversion, which leads, as we saw again this morning, to a full transformation of our lives. Sober-mindedness leads to self-control. It's the evidence of the work of God's Spirit in us. As we are sober-minded in our thinking of the world, of ourselves, of God, and of everything that we know and see, part of the evidence of that is the transformation of our lives. Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, it's last in this list, too, but not because it's the least of them, probably because it's the greatest of them, as some argue. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These two, then, self-control, sober-mindedness, go hand in hand in the Christian life. The one, sober-mindedness, leads to the other, self-control. We won't have time to do it tonight, but if you look back at the verses, verses 1 through 6, you see this call to self-control, don't you? In verses 3 through 5 especially, you see this idea that we are called for the time that is past suffices, he says, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry, all examples of a lack of self-control. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you for it. So many of our young people today taking stands of self-control, not giving themselves over to sin or to the passions which all of us face, often face this kind of rebuke and this judgment and malignment by friends around them. We all have experienced that to one degree or another when we live sober-minded and self-controlled lives. This is the second thing that Peter calls us to, this relationship between the two. The third is really the focus of the remaining part of our study. That is sober-mindedness and prayer. Uh, it's not an immediate connection in our minds, is it? This is the main point, I think, of the passage tonight, and some clarification is probably helpful. What does Peter mean when he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers? The word that is translated here, for the sake of, is a very basic Hebrew word. It's the word ace. It has various meanings depending on the context. It could mean simply in your prayers, that is, be sober-minded in what you pray for. It could mean for the purpose of your prayers, so that you may indeed pray. It could mean in order that you may pray properly. And then it could be simply be sober-minded unto prayer, that is, sober-mindedness will necessarily lead to prayer. Now, the ESV, I think, takes some liberty 
in the translation it gives us here, for the sake of your prayers. But I actually liked it so much that I put it as the sermon title. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. One commentator suggests that this may be the same idea as we see in 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter in that chapter and verse makes a very interesting statement. Husbands, pay attention here. Very similar, some argue, to 4.7. The language is not similar, but the idea and sense is. Likewise, you husbands, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that in order that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, this writer suggests that what Peter may have in mind here is that if we are not living sober-minded lives, our prayers in some way may be hindered. Now, I'm not convinced that that's the meaning here, but whatever is intended here by Peter, he is clearly showing a relationship between sober-mindedness and our prayers. That really is the key here. There's a relationship, Peter says, between how we approach life, living sober-mindedly, and our prayers. Let me give you a helpful list of some of the ideas through history that have been mentioned from well-known commentators. John Calvin, for instance, says by adding prayer, he points out an exercise that is especially necessary in which the faithful ought to be particularly occupied since their whole strength depends on the Lord. So his approach here is that prayer is something that we need, our strength depends on it, as though he said, since ye are yourselves extremely weak, seek of the Lord to strengthen you. Think rightly about prayer and your need of it. Matthew Henry says, take care that you be continually in a calm and sober disposition fit for prayer, and that you be frequent in your prayers, lest this end come upon you unawares. Those who would pray to purpose must watch unto prayer. They must watch over their own spirits, watch all fit opportunities, and do their duty in the best manner that they can. Matthew Poole, concise and to the point, keep yourselves in a praying frame of mind. Sober-minded there refers to then the frame of mind by which we approach God. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary, the characteristics of being sober-minded and self-controlled are essential for unhindered prayer. Prayer requires effort, then the Christian is able to present his praises and petitions earnestly before the throne of God. And then Peter Davids in his commentary, our author is calling for a mental alertness that sees life correctly in the light of the coming end. This will lead to prayer, not the prayer based on daydreams and unreality, nor the prayer based on surprise desperation, but the prayer that calls upon and submits to God in light of the reality seen from God's perspective and thus obtains power and guidance in the situation, however evil the time may be. For proper prayer is not an opiate or an escape, but rather a function of clear vision and a seeking of even clearer vision from God. 
Those are all, I think, saying the same thing. And they're helpful in understanding this connection between prayer, our prayers, and sober-mindedness. And it's striking, as you look again at the teachings of Jesus, how often Jesus makes this connection as well. One example to suffice, Luke 21, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all of these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Paul, following the example of his and our Savior, says in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, being sober-minded in it with thanksgiving. And then this one final uh, comment from David Helm in his commentary, our sober-mindedness, he writes, is for the sake of our prayers. That's how he interprets this, and I think he's right. It's for the sake of our prayers. This is a convicting truth. Let me, he says, put it this way. The mark of the Christian at the end of the age is a person on his or her knees in prayer. We are to watch and pray. It is no surprise that Peter uses the language of the garden. You see what he's doing there? The language of the garden, he says. Not an ordinary garden, but as we know, what he has in view here is the language of the garden of Gethsemane. It's hard not to remember that scene. It's hard to forget. Luke's account of prayer in the garden is the shortest of the accounts in the Gospels, but I think it's likely the best regarding this point. Luke writes in his Gospel that he came, that is Jesus, and went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when they came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down, and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. Now Matthew and Mark include some words that Jesus also said that are not included in Luke's account. As Jesus returns to them, he also said that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now here's the most important question. Why did the disciples not stay awake to pray with Jesus? Why, why couldn't they remain awake? Was it simply a function of their being overwhelmed and tired? Uh, if it was, Jesus, being fully man, was also overwhelmed and tired, more than they would ever possibly know or be. No, I think there was something else going on here. In the language of Peter, I think they were not sober-minded. They weren't thinking rightly about any of these things. Knowing their master's anguish, Peter, James, and John should have stayed up and watched 
for Jesus' return from his time of prayer. They should have been alert. They should have been ready to offer consolation. That is what true friends do, after all. But Jesus went away and returned to the three disciples no less than three times, and each time he returned, he found them sleeping. Despite having heard what lay ahead from Jesus himself, the disciples did not understand their own weakness. They did not grasp their need to rely on the Lord and not on their own strength for the trial ahead. The disciples were willing to stay with Jesus, but they did not take into account the power of their fallenness, of their flesh, to overpower their commitment to Christ. In short, they were not sober-minded. Jesus had told them what was coming. Being sober-minded would have received that and understood that this was now a great battle that Jesus was entering and he was calling them to stand with him. But they were not sober-minded. They did not think rightly about themselves, their own weakness of the flesh. They didn't think rightly about what Jesus was doing as he told them. They were not sober-minded. And so be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Well, that's the text before us. Two things as we close and prepare to come to the Lord's table. I will tell you that all three sermons have the same first point, which is simply this, because it's an admonition of Scripture. Be ye, be you, sober-minded. This is always going to be the point. It's because it's a key admonition of this series, but for different reasons. A call to sober-mindedness is a call to see the world the way God sees it to see ourselves as the disciples failed to see in themselves as weak in our flesh, unable to do anything apart from God's grace. How often do we forget that when we find ourselves involved in various sins and temptations? When we are brought to our senses, we think, I just simply forgot that I'm weak and I can't handle this on my own. Sober-mindedness is what protects us from forgetting those things. This morning I was reading, not this morning, this week I should say, I was reading an article on the ongoing genocide of Christians in Nigeria, prompted by my brother and sister who have family and are from Nigeria. I was reading this article and amazed at what this article uh, said with regard to all that's happening in Nigeria today. Towards the end of the article, this writer Speaking of the current president says this, fueling the skepticism, that is people's view of this president, could be that in mid-December, President Tanubu referred to his predecessor as an icon of truth, justice, and patriotism. He then followed the habit of his predecessor in not acknowledging any religious motivation at all for the Christmas Day attacks. Even, the writer goes on to say, even if everyone else does, Christians must not forget the spiritual root of this conflict. That is sober-mindedness. For over a century, God has been moving and the church has been expanding across Africa. In 1900, there were only 9.6 million Christians on the continent. Today, there are over 692 million, and they are among the most committed Christians in the world. It is not surprising that Satan would inspire their ongoing persecution. For our Nigerian brothers and sisters, we can fight on two fronts. 
First, we must continue to lobby our government on their behalf, asking our officials to put pressure on Nigeria to take more decisive action against Boko Haram and the Fulani herdsmen. Second, we must lobby heaven for both our persecuted brothers and sisters and their persecutors, praying that God's kingdom would advance and win even the jihadis to Jesus. Sober-mindedness for the sake of your prayers, and so pray accordingly. Pursue sober-mindedness in 2024. If you don't, sometimes God has a way of getting our attention, bringing us to the end of ourselves, reminding us the things that we have so conveniently forgotten. And he often does that in remarkable ways, always in his mercy and always with an aim to return us, if we are truly his, to that right way of thinking and of looking at the world. Now, I don't know, I should say in this example, I was reading as well this past week, someone in the congregation passes on a golf magazine, which helps me to live my fantasy of being a really good golfer as I sit in my office and read it. Angel Cabrera, golfer, spent two and a half years in prison in Argentina of some pretty horrific crimes of assault against others. Now hoping to come back to golf, he is in his mid-50s. And he said this, that as he stood and or sat in prison for two and a half years, he gave thanks to God that he was there. Now, I don't know what his heart is like. I don't know whether he knows the Lord or not, but I know that the Lord in that moment got his attention. And that is the common story, really, of many who are in prison. You immediately become, at least for a short time, more sober-minded now than ever before. Pray that God would allow you to be sober-minded in accordance with his grace and not needing a wake-up call in your own life. Secondly, pray then with a sober mind. Pray in your prayers. Pray with a sober, sober mind. Now, you may say to me, that's great, Pastor. That makes sense, what Peter's saying here, but how do I do that? It begins first by living your life, seeing the world and yourself as they really are. That's the sober-mindedness Peter encourages us to. That will drive you to prayer, I guarantee you. When you see yourself as weak and unable to do anything in your own strength, dependent utterly in God, isn't that what prayer is after all? Several years ago, we looked at prayer as the beginning of a new year. Isn't that what it is, acknowledging in our words and actions that we are incapable of doing what God calls us to do apart from his grace? That's all prayer is. Making our requests known unto God according to his will. All of that is driven by, fueled by our way of thinking, sober-mindedness. And then we pray accordingly. We pray about the world, as I mentioned in Nigeria and other places. We pray about ourselves. We pray about others. I've looked this week at all the prayers that I could in the New Testament. I didn't go back to the Old Testament. I trust and know they would be the same. Do you know what's common about every one of them? They're all sober-minded prayers. They're centered upon who God is, who we are, what God's purpose and his will is. Think about John 17, the great prayer of our Savior interceding for us and what he prayed for. 
Go back and look at that prayer. Look at what he prayed for. Look at the prayers of the saints in the scriptures themselves. We read Ephesians 1 as part of the service tonight. You can read Ephesians 3, another prayer of Paul for those dear and precious believers where Timothy was their pastor. Look at what he prayed for. Those are sober-minded prayers. And they're all aligned with God's purpose in our lives, what he's revealed in his word about what he is doing in us and through us for the glory of his own name. Read them, study them, model your prayers after those prayers as you pray for one another. You take this list that we have in our bulletin every single week, take it home with you, use it. Go through this list as you pray for those who are sick, suffering in any way physically. Yes, pray for them physically. Pray that God would have mercy upon them, relieve their pain, all of those things that we pray for. But do not forget to pray that God would sanctify to them every distress that they face. Do not forget to pray that God would use the loss of a baby within their womb, that God would use that in their lives, reminding those who have suffered such loss that that loss has come from the hands of their father who loves them. And that you would pray that God would remind them in those moments of his love, compassion, and mercy, even in the midst of that loss, and that that would be the comfort that they feel and know in the midst of these times. Pray for physical needs, pray for temporal needs, but please do not forget to pray according to what God has revealed in his word in a way that is sober-minded. And so be sober-minded, brothers and sisters. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let us pray. Our Father, we know, even as we come now to this table, what our greatest need is, and that is we would have more of Christ and that he would have more of us. And so now as we come, we pray humbly that you would meet us in our desperate need, remind us of all that you have done for us in Christ, all that is ours in him, and cause us to rejoice before your presence now as we consider these things rightly, as your word has revealed them. Make us, Father, we pray, sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.